Artificial intelligence seems to be overturning every part of life. How about this one? AI and its country cousin machine learning in the development of new drugs. For how AI can help and some of the risks, we turn to the Food and Drug Administration's Associate Director for Policy Analysis, and that's within the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, Dr. Tala Fekuri. Dr. Fekuri, good to have you with us. Thank you for having me. And I imagine this is something of great interest to CEDAR, where you work in FDA and FDA writ large. I imagine the drug companies, the manufacturers and developers, they've got to be looking at AI. Fair to say? That is fair to say. In fact, we've received over 175 submissions for drug approval that included the use of AI and machine learning in drug development. And the uses really traverse the spectrum of drug development from drug discovery all the way to clinical research, to manufacturing, and to post-market safety surveillance. Yeah, that was really my next question. Where in the life cycle of a drug does all this apply? Because at the development stage, it's really they develop new molecules, essentially. How could AI help in that stage? Let's concentrate there for a moment. Right. So artificial intelligence and machine learning, for example, can be used to predict how specific proteins will, will fold or to predict certain targets for molecules that are already on the market or to discover new uses for existing molecules. This is something that we call drug repurposing. These uses are very exciting, and we think they may contribute to the development of safer drugs faster. However, a lot of the application of AI in that early phase of drug discovery is outside of what FDA regulates, but we still see submissions that will include information about the use of AI in that early stage of drug development. And do the same worries apply for AI development here as apply to everywhere else? And that is, did they use sufficient and correct data such that the output is reliable? Will that molecule do what they hope it will do? Is that, that the case? I mean, you worry about the data and the, and the algorithms. One way that we evaluate the use of AI machine learning and drug development, let's say we got an application with AI being used in clinical research to predict outcomes for patients, predict how they'll respond to a treatment, for example. The way that we would review this application would take into consideration the benefits and the risk of using this technology. Specifically, we emphasize the ethical use of AI. We emphasize issues related to transparency. We need to know, for example, the data that was used to develop these models. Is that data high quality data? Does it address issues related to bias, which may then lead to bias in the algorithm itself? We also look at the model's performance to make sure that it is predicting or it's performing in a way that is consistent with how the sponsor or the specific researcher had intended it to do. Got it. And let's move on to the topic of how AI could apply to the clinical testing, because that's in some ways one of the longest parts of drug development. You might be able to come up with the new drug in six months, but then you got to spend five years testing it. And that could be really controversial, I imagine, because tests take as long as they take and developments of after effects or cures take as long as they take. Can AI speed that up in a way that you can rely on it? Am I asking the right question? You are asking the right question. AI can be used in clinical research. In fact, 
for us on the FDA side, the majority of AI uses in drug submissions are in the clinical research part of the spectrum. AI can be used for outcome prediction. This is one of the strengths of AI and machine learning is its predictive power. So it can take information about the patient, for example, about their lab values, their demographics, and predict how they would respond to a specific drug and if they will respond to a specific dose. This is wonderful because you could do things like dose optimization using this technology and it's pretty fast. So we do expect it to expedite certain aspects of clinical research. We also know that AI, for example, is used for something that we call patient selection and stratification. Finding the patients that would be able to respond to the drug is very important. AI can be used to be able to do that. There's also new applications of AI that are very interesting to the FDA. For example, the creation of something known as a digital twin. So for example, you would have a single arm trial where everyone is taking the treatment and then you would simulate what would happen to the specific patient had they not taken the placebo. So this is another application that we expect to see. We're speaking with Dr. Tala Fekouri. She is Associate Director for Policy Analysis at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research in the Food and Drug Administration. And for the FDA, what is it that you need in the FDA to be able to keep up with this? You hinted earlier that there might be an extension of regulatory oversight that you would need, and would that have to come from Congress, for example? For us on the FDA side, specifically for CEDAR, the evidentiary standards needed to support drug approval remain the same, regardless of the technology that you're using. It's very important to emphasize that, that the paradigm that we currently use has not changed. We are actively monitoring advances in AI machine learning, and we continuously engage with experts, whether through expert workshops or recently in May, we published two papers, two discussion papers, one focusing on the entire drug development landscape and the other one more specifically targeting the use of AI in drug manufacturing. In that document, in both documents, we raise questions to help engage with the community, with stakeholders, and we hope to receive a lot of good feedback. The purpose of these discussion papers is really to be able to understand if there are areas or gaps where additional regulatory clarity is needed but I can tell you as of now, with the 175 submissions that we've received, our evidentiary standards are the same. The paradigm that we're using has not changed because there isn't a need to provide additional clarity as of now. But it sounds like you have the potential maybe for some additional rulemaking based on what these submissions say and where those gaps might be. So after we receive the comments on the docket for the two discussion papers, we plan to carefully and thoughtfully analyze all of the feedback that we've received. We plan to conduct public workshops next year to be able to address needs for the community in terms of additional regulatory clarities. And if there is a need to provide future guidance, of course, we'll be happy to do that uh, because we want to make sure that this technology is used in a responsible way and used to develop new, safe, effective medications for the public. And what about the requirements that FDA would have in terms of your own people and their knowledge to keep up with developments in AI and algorithms and how this is all being used? Because there's you know, many forms of AI, many sources of AI, and they've got to keep up with that no less than the drug industry. Right. So internally within the FDA, within CEDAR, we are 
conducting a lot of work internally to be able to bolster our workforce, right? Make sure that folks are trained in the use of these technologies. You can take classes, you can attend seminars, but also in terms of hiring, hiring experts that could help us better understand the use of this technology in practice. A final question with AI, do you anticipate just from your general sense of what's going on in the world that this has the potential to lower the cost of drug development and deployment? I mean, the ideal world, you know, that latest cancer drug would cost as much as an aspirin or as little as an aspirin. Probably that's unlikely. Could this drive cost out of the entire life cycle here, do you think? Costing of drugs is outside of the domain of what I work on within the agency, but one can expect that if you have drugs being developed faster, this may may reduce costs on all ends. All right, let's hope so. Dr. Tala Fekori is Associate Director for Policy Analysis at the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research at the FDA. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to 
this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership 
that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sasulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.